Okay, good morning. Thank you again, Esty, for hosting us. We appreciate it. And uh, help yourself to coffee and what kind of muffin is that? A crumb muffin, please help yourself. Okay. Um, we're going to study today a piece from Mikhtav Meliahu. Mikhtav Meliahu is from uh, Revelio Dessler. Revelio Dessler was uh, Mashkiach in Panovich, was originally uh, in, uh, not originally, but was in England. Um, I'll give you the exact dates of his life to give you a sense of context. Of Dessler was born in 1892. And died in 1953. He, um, as I say, was uh, was in Panovich and uh, before that, was born in Lita. Was in England. Was in London. Was in Gateshead, and then in, Pan- in Panovich. So there's uh, six volumes. I think it's up to six volumes of his uh, sichas of the lessons that he taught. Um, it's been translated. Some of them have been translated into a three volume called Strive for Truth. You may have seen it. And uh, Rav Dessler was the Mashkiach of, of Panovich. So he has a, a chapter here called Emuna Ubitachon, very appropriate for our study. And if you look at the footnote, you'll see this was the Sicha Achrona Shezachin Lishmom in Pi Admor Ahov. This was the last talk, public, public talk, that his students said they merited to hear from him was on this subject, our subject of Emuna and Bitachon. So he begins the following. One of the strongest powers, the inherent strengths within a person, buried within a person, one of the innate, one of the intuitive characteristics of the human being is that we naturally see ourselves as independent. We tend to want to see ourselves as autonomous. We see ourselves as responsible for our own achievements and accomplishments. That we are the catalyst who brings something into fruition, who creates and that we in fact derive benefit, we derive uh, joy, we derive pleasure from our accomplishments and achievements. Right? Few things feel better than getting something done. You know, the to-do list that you've had forever, and it might have on it the most mundane things. Clean the closet, go through the playroom, do the... What it, it has the most mundane, nobody would say they're sacred tasks, they're intellectual tasks, they're not rocket science, and yet... When you finally set aside that time on the Sunday and you've cleaned out the closet, you feel gishmak. You got you to bounce in your step that evening because, well, I got something done. I had a thought about something I wanted to do and I got it done and that feels great. So Rav Dessler is describing that there's an innate human quality of a certain pleasure or joy or happiness that we derive simply from a sense of accomplishment. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll recognize that the joy that derives from the clean closet is not necessarily the cleanliness of the closet. Certainly is a greater functionality, and it's good, always feels good to be organized. But the real joy of that day that you spent cleaning the closet, and I'm intentionally giving such a insignificant example, but the real joy that you've derived is that you had a goal and that you have finished it. And you feel good about yourself looking at it. You've accomplished, you've achieved. Whatever it is that we were pursuing, whatever it is we were seeking to achieve, very often is much less significant than the process of having achieved it. Meaning, the clean closet when all is said and done, is really not that big a deal. 
You went shopping. You got mm-hmm. done what you needed to get done. In the greater scheme of things, is really insignificant. What feels significant is the feeling of accomplishment and achievement that you had an idea, you had a thought, you had a goal, you had a plan, and you followed it through to fruition. The feeling that you said you were going to do something, you had the thought to do it, and you actually did it, that process, the intent to the plan to the execution, is a source of great joy. I think we can all identify and relate to the feeling of accomplishment and achievement. Good. So that's all setting it up. Rav Dessler is the premise. He has yet to give a judgment. Is that good? Is that bad? Is that accurate? Is it inaccurate? The way you presented initially, I wasn't sure if it was like a selfish thing or not. But so, so he's about to he's about to head to the punchline. And he gives an example here in this next paragraph about about Chesed. A person who does Chesed, a person who does kindness, who's selfless and helpful to others. What is the what is the the value? If a person does something for themselves, so the person who does chesed is also doing something for themselves in the sense that they get the kickback of feeling really good about themselves from doing chesed. So one person feels really good by getting a manicure, and the next person feels really good by making a meal for the neighbor who's sitting shiva. We tend to honor at the shul dinner the person who cooked the chesed meal. The person who got the manicure, we say, okay, there's nothing wrong with getting a manicure, but there's nothing particularly impressive about it either. So ask Rav Dessler, but what really fundamentally is the difference? Even the person who does chesed, why do they do chesed? Because it feels really good to do chesed. It feels really good to see yourself as the person who does chesed, to know that you're doing the right thing. You get the emotional, spiritual kickback of feeling good about it. So both the person getting the manicure and the person doing chesed are both feeling good. So what fundamentally is the difference between the two? That's his question. Elsewhere, says Rav Dessler, we explored the, the uh, mistake in the premise of the question. But now, addressing it from a different perspective, the answer is simple. He says there is a fundamental difference. And that is that true, the person who got the manicure and the person who did the chesed both get the kickback of feeling that they've accomplished, they achieved, they did something they set out to do, they did something that gave them a sense of joy, but the motive or the intent or the quality of the action they're pursuing is fundamentally different. The person who's doing chesed is motivated to get a positive kickback by doing something that helps others. Whereas the person who derives the pleasure of the manicure, and again, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with getting a manicure as long as it's not in lieu of the pleasure of doing chesed. Um, but the person who, does the, who goes to get the manicure, as an example, the motive um, is not equivalent to the motive, the pure, the, the, as he describes it, the she'ifa tahora lechesed, the pure aim or goal of chesed. But ultimately what he's pointing out is that in every area of our life, from chesed to the manicure to life to business to shopping to cleaning the closet, we have this innate, inherent, natural feeling of pleasure of having had a thought, of wanting to accomplish something, of setting a goal, and of fulfilling it. Yes? Wonderful feeling, we did something really nice, but why is it only, it doesn't last so long? 
like the feeling like if it was such a wonderful thing, I wish that the pleasure of doing a mitzvah would last longer. You know, it's a short... Yeah, I hear. I think it does last longer than other pleasures. I think that more inauthentic pleasures, like you know, eating some delicious food, is really gone. You know, an hour after you left the restaurant or the meal. Um, whereas the mitzvah does transform you to a certain sense that it's always part of your repertoire. It's always part of the chesed that you did. Nobody could take that away from you. The food you ate is gone, literally and figuratively, within a certain amount of time. But the chesed that you achieved or accomplished, the impact or impression that you left. Remain. So the high of it may wear off, because that's just the nature of life, that things wear off, but the accomplishment remains. And I feel, just one minute, I feel like when you start going in that mode of looking for the next mitzvah, it puts you in a good pattern, because you are so, you, have, you like that feeling of right. the mitzvah, but you, you're looking for your next one. So it creates a pattern that helps you. I'll tell you, the, one of the most impressive people to me who, who will remain nameless is somebody who is not predisposed to chesed. You, know, you have people who came out of their mother's womb doing chesed. They were like taking care of the other nurse, babies in the nursery <laughs> when they were still like uh, you know, newborns. They just, they just love to give and that's who they are and they get something out. And then sometimes you meet somebody who says, I hate chesed. I, I get no pleasure from it. And, but I do it because I know it's the right thing to do. And that person is so impressive because they're not getting that kickback. They're not getting that innate joy. It's not what they're predisposed or how they're pre-programmed to be. They're doing it because they know it's the right thing to host others, to leave the comfort zone, to make other people feel good, to initiate friendship and conversation. Not to me, something which is, is, is really uh, impressive and I think is also a model for us to follow in the areas that we don't feel. In other words, people naturally go to what they're predisposed to do. This one's an extrovert and chesed comes easy. This one is loves to daven with kavana. This one, love, emuna comes easy. This one, we have predisposed towards different positive qualities. But the real test and the real arena of personal growth is whether we can leave our comfort zone in the areas that don't come naturally and that we're not predisposed to do. So I think it's very impressive. But anyway, coming back to you. So, so far, if Dessler has just laid the groundwork to say it's an observation that we innately are pre-programmed, that we get pleasure out of accomplishment. However, that is a fundamental flaw. Now, now, we, well, now we come to the judgment. There's a fundamental flaw in that feeling that we get. And what's the fundamental flaw is that we ourselves, we and only we, are responsible for having achieved whatever we achieved. Whether it's a great idea that we had or thought, whether it's a great action we took, whether it's cleaning our closet. To think that it's purely autonomous. We, on our own, with no influence, with no impact, with no contribution from anywhere else, we alone did it. That's a fundamental flaw. Now, it's expressed most poignantly in the context of achievement in the area of Gashmis, in the area of the physical, material world. As we say in Dvarim Perches, Hishama lacha pantishkach es Hashem Be careful, lest you forget God. V'yamarta bilvavcha, and you're going to say in your heart, Kochi ve'otzem yadi you will say in your heart, Kohi, it's my koach, it's my strength, it's my work, it's my effort and toil which is responsible for this accomplishment. Why should you not say that? Because, because, where did you get the strength from? The Ran, in his Drushas Aran, says about this Pasuk, the antidote or the response, right, what's the Torah warning us? The Torah actually is describing, Moshe is talking to the Jewish people here, and he says, you're about to enter the land. Right now you have been an entirely dependent people. 
God has taken you through the desert and He's given you the food to eat and He's given you the protection and He's given you the water and He's given you and you've been just totally, totally nurtured in this cocoon. You're about to go into Israel and you're going to create an agrarian society, agricultural society. You're going to plant and you're going to have to nurture and you're going to harvest. You're going to set up a judicial system. You're going to set up a police force and an army. And you know what the result of all of this is? You are very much at risk because you, my beloved Jewish people, who have gone from being passive recipients to now being active participants in your destiny, you run the risk. And what's the risk that you run? You're going to say, ah, we don't need God to protect us from our enemies. We've got a great army. I don't need God's help to have access to food. I work really hard in the field. I don't need get kochem otzim yadi. You're going to be tempted to say, it's kochi, it's my koach, it's my strength that is responsible for accomplishing these things. And what's the answer? No. Hu hanosein lecha koach. God's the one that gave you that strength. So the Ron points out, the answer is not to deny our role in having accomplished our goals. It's not to say, I don't really protect us, it's all God. I didn't really work hard, the food fell from heaven. Of course you work hard. That's a disservice to those serving in the army. Today's Yom HaZikaron, who's lost their lives and sacrificed, paid the ultimate price to found the state of Israel, to defend the state of Israel, to say it's all God and they had nothing to do with it is a terrible disservice to their memory and to the people currently serving in the army, one of whom lives and came from this house, who currently serve in the army. It's a disservice to say they're not really doing anything, they're just pawns, it's really all God. Says the Ram, no, they are. What, what humility asks us to do is not to deny our strengths, it's not to deny who we are and what we accomplish, it's to recognize that those strengths are on loan from God. They're never part of our permanent collection. They're never owned by us, they're borrowed borrowed by us from God. So whatever your strength is, whether it's you have a certain level IQ or intellectual cognitive capacity or great memory, whether it's your artistic or whether it's your athletic or whether it's your creative or whether it's your social and you have a great personality or whoever you're predisposed to be, it can disappear in a moment. It can disappear because there could be a health challenge. It could disappear because the skill leaves you overnight. The skill, I mentioned this in Shul recently in Adrasha. And some famous singer who woke up with a throat problem, voice problem the next day and had to cancel all their concerts and their career is over. Just out of nowhere. So it can disappear. So the Ran says, the answer to Kochi V'otsim Yadi is not to say, well, I had nothing to do with it. The answer is to say, I had a lot to do with it. I had to work hard. I had to exert myself. I had to sacrifice. But where I had the skills and the energy and the wisdom and the drive to accomplish it, that's from Hashem. And that could disappear any moment. Vim Tomar if you'll say, we're in the middle of the third paragraph. Well, you know what you might say to yourself is, yes, the, the successful outcome of the idea, that was up to God. We have ideas all the time. You might have an idea about a great business effort. You might have an idea about a great program for the shul, for the sister, for the PTA. You might have an idea about something, anything. And you'll say, okay, so whether the idea was successful, that was Hashem. That was God. But the idea is mine. I had the idea. That came from me. I take credit for the idea. Right? It's very tempting to say that. So listen to what he writes. Gam ze'eno. That also is a mistake. Ki Because these words, that God's the one who gives us koach, tirgem unklos, unklos, the convert, um, translated into Aramaic, it means when we say that God gave me the koach, it doesn't just mean God gave me the physical strength or the physical capacity to have accomplished. 
means God even gave me the idea. I didn't find or discover or think about or create that idea without His input. So everything is from Hashem. Everything Hashem has a role in. I have to tell you, this resonates deeply with me. <coughs> Why? Every week I have to write a message, prepare classes, figure out the drusha, come up with a topic for a class. And, you know, once you have the idea, that's like 90% of the work. Writing it or putting together the class, the source sheet, that's 10% of it. 90% of it, 90% of it, 90% ignore, 90% of it is, is the idea. And I can tell you, there are times when I'm sitting and the clock is ticking and my wife is calling or texting and um, I've looked, I've spent three hours looking through svarim and ideas. I, I can't find something to speak about. A drushatah, I'm desperate. And there are moments like that. I came across an article, you heard it by Torah, you happened to open the safer to that page. It's unbelievable. I see siyat deshmaya. I feel Hashem in every speech I give, in every article I write. <coughs> I'm not going to tell you I don't have to put work into it. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes effort, it takes time away from my family. I take credit. I feel, I feel proud. But I see siyat deshmaya. I see Hashem's hand in every idea, thought, what I found, what I came across, what every single one of them, every single one of them. So this phenomenon, the danger of feeling a sense of autonomy and independent and it's all me, is not just in the realm of strength and talent and action, it's even in the realm of thought, it's even in the realm of ideas. That it too, who said you were going to open that safe or it fell off the shelf or caught your eye or the person happened to send you the email at that moment that tipped you off about the thing that became the idea to do the... All of that, nothing's random, nothing's by chance. It's orchestrated, there's a plan. And we have to feel grateful. In fact, to me, feeling grateful is the greatest thing we can do to make sure that it's like, you know, God's your idea dealer, you know? You gotta pay the dealer if you want the ideas to keep flowing. So how do we pay the dealer is gratitude and a recognition of his role. I'm the junior partner in the drushes I give. Kosh Baruch is the senior partner. So I get the glory. I get to stand in front and be the mouthpiece and give the drusha. But I wouldn't have found that idea, and I wouldn't have had that siyata deshmaya, the divine help in, in formulating it in that way without him. And I feel, I'm, I'm telling you, just by way of personal illustration, not because I'm trying to toot my horn in any way, I have a lot of work to do in this area too, but when I come across that idea, I will be alone in my office, and I will be talking and thanking Hashem. I literally will talk to him. Thank you so much. I'll talk to him before giving a drusha. I'll talk to him after the drusha. I'll talk to him because he's a partner. I don't think that those, it's mamish, it takes siyat deshmaya. And if I ever start to forget that, there comes a week where I dry up. <laughs> the, the ink is dry, there's writer's block, and I'm sitting there desperate, desperate. It takes siyat deshmaya. So that's just an illustration where it's not only true in the realm of action, even in the realm of ideas. God gave you the eitzah. You think you came up with that idea to start that business? Or to make that relationship? Or to network in that way? Where do you think that idea itself came from? It's seeing Hashem in every area, even in the area of the ideas that we have. Where did you find that draw? All of a sudden you woke up this morning and you had this insatiable appetite to speak to that person or to post that thing. or to Where do you think that came from? That came. All of this is to design a sense of free will. Now what you do with the idea, that is entirely up to you. Hashem has no control. That's where we come to free will. 
Free will and choice is what do we do with that idea? Do we put in the work it will take to bring it to fruition? Or was it fleeting and temporal? Did it pass and dissipate and disappear? Do we put in the effort? That is where we come in. As our, that's our area of the partnership that we put in our time. Right? So you could be sitting on the couch with no income. You have this unbelievable idea for a business. So part of the idea is yours, but part of it is you have to feel grateful God gave you the idea. But now if you sit on the couch, that idea is not going to create income if you don't actually work. And when you work, you take credit for the effort you put in, the time you spent, but ultimately whether it met success or not with God again. All of the strength and all of this effort we need. Turn another Because without it, there's no way we could accomplish in the war with the Yetzer. What does he mean here? So on the one hand, we have to maintain this incredible tension in our lives. On the one hand, we are conceding, we are deferring to Hashem's senior role in everything that happens in our life. On the other hand, we're supposed to feel a sense of drive that our choices matter, that we have to do effort. Because you might, like a Scientologist, say, "Eh, what do I need to really do any effort for? If I'm sick, it's because God wanted me to be sick. I'm not going to go to the doctor. If He wants me to get better, I'll be better. Ah, you know, I don't earn a livelihood. If God wants me to earn a livelihood, it'll show up on my doorstep. If He doesn't want me to, um, even if I work hard, I'll be poor. Why bother working at all? The danger of too much emuna, so to say, it's really a false or counterfeit emuna, is that you're going to become passive to your own destiny. You're not going to work hard. On the other hand, the danger of working so hard that you cut God out of the equation is that you're denying the senior partner who's really responsible for the accomplishment. So life is about that tension, that balance between inviting and seeing His role in our lives but never being, never lacking drive or motivation to do what we need to do. And why did God need to help us realize that our choices matter in the realm of defeating the Yetzirah? Because if we were passive spectators, if we were if we felt life was predetermined, we would never think that we could overcome whatever it is we need to work on. We all have challenges, we all have areas that we need work. We would never think that we have the capacity to work because you'd say, if God wants me to not have those challenges, He would take away my uh, desire for Lashon Hara. He would take away my desire for chocolate cake. He would take away my desire for, if God wants me to have that desire. So, no. So we have to realize that our choices matter in the realm of being able to overcome and uh, being able to defeat the Yetzer. I told that story in the Parsha Shir, right? So I could tell it in the Amunah Shir and do tshuva because I said the wrong age. I got in trouble. I don't think I told it in the Amunah Shir. But my, our Tamima, who's six years old, got this little journal for kids. He fell out, my favorite color, my favorite friend, my favorite memory, my favorite vacation. You know, a fun little thing. And so one of the questions, which is a bizarre question for a kid's journal, was, who's your arch nemesis? What? Kind of a bizarre question. Like right? Wasn't no, it? Your arch enemy. Who's your best friend? Who's your, who's your arch nemesis? Who's your favorite teacher? Who's your arch nemesis? So Tamima came to Yechevin and said, What's an arch nemesis? <laughs> well, it says, Tamima, you don't have any enemies, but it means like, Who's your enemy? Who do you not get along with? She said, Okay. She takes her color and her pen and then she goes and figures the book. And later Yechevin looks in the book and six years old. What did she fill out? Who's her arch nemesis? Mayetzahara. Is that a great answer? Yes. Mayetzahara. Six-year-old. Got it right? That's right. It's more impressive than a nine-year-old. More impressive. Yeah, I got it upside down last time. So, why do we have the ability for free will? It's a reminder that we have the capacity to overcome. So, 
he's about to get into, I think this is a, a phenomenal observation. Our capacity, we have this ability to influence, but we misdirect it. We think, where should we direct it? Exclusively in the realm of the material world. So in the material world, we try hard at work, we try hard in our health, and we try hard in all these areas in the material world. And then when it comes to our spiritual life, we're very passive and fatalistic. I am who I am. This is how I'm created. This is Things are what they are. If God wants them to be different, they'll be different. And it's totally upside down and backwards. The whole, the whole capacity to make choices and to influence our destiny is given to us specifically for the spiritual realm. Never to be complacent. Never to be apathetic. Never to be satisfied with who we think we are. But to work on it. To improve and to be better. And listen to what he writes. In reality, everything is in the hands of Hashem. There's only one area that we really choose, and that is whether to live our lives with an awareness and a mindfulness of Hashem. What does he mean, everything really is in the hands of Hashem? Whenever I share this Gemara, everybody always resists. What do you mean everything's in the hands of Hashem? I chose what to wear today. I chose to live here. I chose this job. I work hard at this job. I chose X, Y, and Z. I chose everything. What do you mean? Everything's in the hands of Hashem other than whether I choose to see Hashem in everything. What are you talking about? But the answer is, so much of our life is predetermined by our DNA, our, how, what, what kind of IQ, intelligence, artistic ability, athleticism, the socioeconomic status that we're born into, what kind of family were you raised in, were you impoverished, were you, um, did you lack privilege, were you born into a privileged situation, were you born in the 20th century or were you born in the 15th century? Did you have laundry machines or did you have to go down to the river and scrub by hand? So much of who we are, I had a, somebody, uh, I had a gift card to a uh, expensive store at the mall, so I needed new sunglasses. I went with my daughter last night because I chose and I was told they were all wrong, so I went back with her to replace them <laughs> with sunglasses that would meet her satisfaction. So she's having me try on all these sunglasses and I said to her, yeah, that's what's in this year. But what these sunglasses cost, I hope they'll last more than that. And in two years, I'll look like an idiot because no one will be wearing this style anymore. So, you know, you think you're choosing the style you're wearing right now because you chose it objectively in a vacuum? As if in the 16th century you would have chosen the same thing? Or in the 23rd century you'll choose the same thing? You're wearing it because it's what's in. It's what's being sold at the stores. It's what everyone's wearing. So, so much of who we are, whether it's our ability to dunk a basketball or your memory or IQ or artistic ability, or whether it was your capacity to enjoy the fine things in life or to be satisfied with very little. So much is due to our background, our DNA, what we've been exposed to, and so on. So much of our lives have been, even if we're in denial of it, has been predetermined. What's left for us to determine? Whether we see God in those lives, whether we invite God into the equation, whether we invite God into our life for a life of meaning and purpose. So this is what he says, in the realm of spirit of spirituality, where in fact we are the sole determiners. Do we see God? That's the choice. That's the ultimately it's almost the only choice we make is whether we see and invite God in. So we have things totally upside down. When it comes to the realm of spirituality, which is really the only place that we can have influence, we tend to be fatalistic. Look, it's my nature. I like to gossip. It's my nature. I like to eat chocolate cake. It's my nature. 
you know, I can't really control myself in this area, that area, the other area. It's my nature. It's the way God created me. It is what it is. It's who I am. It's who I am. So that's what we tend to do. In the realm where we can't have influence, we totally forfeit the influence and say, that's who I am. And in the realm where ultimately we really don't have influence, and in the area of the material world where ultimately our success relies on God, we act as if it's all in our domain. We have it totally upside down. So when it comes to work in the material world, it's all me. I take full responsibility and pride and accomplishment. God has nothing to do with it. And in the role where we really should be working, we say, oh, it's all God. We have it totally upside down and we have to work harder on getting to the opposite conclusion. That when it comes to our work in the material world, we have to say, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to take pride. But really, it's all to God. Whether I get the job, earn the income, make the living, close the deal, whether I, whether the chocolate, whether the kugel comes out good, whether the, whatever the material thing that you're working on, we make our effort, but we have to realize, we have to submit and forfeit and concede that it's all to God. And in the realm of ruchnius, spirituality, we have to recognize, leave God out of it. God handed the keys to you. Stop blaming God that you can't stop gossiping or stop eating the chocolate cake or start davening with kavana, or make the bracha before and after you eat, or live life with emunah, or be honest in your business dealings. Stop blaming God that that's how He designed you. That's how you're pre-programmed. That that's your nature. Stop blaming God. Because that's the area of life that God handed you the keys and said, drive the car. You choose which lane to go, which direction. It's up to you. So we have it the opposite. And to work on emunah means to set things straight. That to apply the right attitude in the right realm. To ultimately switch them exactly. And if you think this is a modern phenomenon, Idan ha technologia ha modernit. He died in the 1950s. He says, if you think this is a, imagine what he would say today. This is a function of the, techni- the technological world where we have advanced, and therefore we think we have it all backwards. Look what was written a thousand years ago by Rabbeinu Bachya in his Chovas Halavavos. And he essentially quotes Rabbeinu Bachya, who essentially writes the exact same thing. We have it upside down. In the realm where we have control, we blame God. And in the realm where we need to turn to God and recognize His hand, we take full, full responsibility. We have it backwards. And to work on Amuna is to work on improving things in both realms. To work on Amuna is to see God more where he deserves credit. And to work on Amuna is to say, stop blaming God in the area where we need to take responsibility and we need to work. Yes? So, I understand what you're saying. I'm totally, I get it. But this keeps popping into my head. You were saying that your genetic disposition, where you were born, who you were born to, and all of that affects your material, physical being. But that also affects your spiritual and mental being. So that is my question to you because let's say I was born to Holocaust survivor. I was born in a very positive, very uplifting, very spiritual, very Baruch Hashem, very so that helps to design who I am today. There's Just no question, like you yeah. You were saying about a person with chesed who was born into chesed versus a person right. that's not doing chesed. So yes, you can be a, a stubborn person and say I'm gonna do this, this and that because you were born into a family that chooses to make those stubborn, positive decisions. A hundred percent. How do you separate that? It's a great question. question. No, it's a great question, John. I'm glad that you brought it up. because someone who has OCD and has amazing kavana and davening because, you know, they're like so intense on getting it right. right. And, you know, right. and of like, course you can turn it around. There's no question. 
But I still think that there is a level of predisposition to all of that. There, there definitely the is. That's the DNA. Well, if you were raised by Holocaust survivors who showed incredible emuna despite what they went through, and your neighbor was raised by Holocaust survivors who threw it all away and were positive there was no God and hated God. So you're right. Your attitude towards Amuna is going to be influenced by the background in which you were raised. And that's undeniable. What I think he's trying to say is that despite that, you can overcome your predispositions in the area of Nuruchnias, whereas in the area of Gashmias, in the area of the material world, like even before I tore my Achilles, if I davened from morning till night, I still would never dunk a basketball. I just don't have that ability. Right? And if you take in the area of work, you could, you could work from day till night, but if you cut God out of the equation, God's the one who's going to decide whether... We know people who work 16 hours a day and they make 30000 a year, and you know people who have down to working 6 hours a day and they make a million dollars a year. So it's not a direct correlation to the amount of effort and work and time and, and sacrifice and toil that you put in. So in the area of Gashmi's the material world... Ultimately, whether you can overcome whatever the predispositions that are there, it's God. Whereas in the area of the spiritual world, yes, we can turn to God for help. And there's a whole other, because this is one extreme articulation of this, because there's a whole other area which says that we ask for siyat deshmaya and ruchnias. You ask for Hashem's help even with, you know, you could daven to Hashem for help to daven with kavana. You can daven to Hashem for help even in the area of ruchnias. So there's definitely an element of that. But what I think what he's trying to say, what we're trying to get out of today is that um, yes, our background influences us even in the spiritual realm, but it is in the spiritual realm where ultimately it's on us. Ultimately it's on us. When you get upstairs and, and there's a dispute, God, why did I make a million dollars a year? And the answer is it's on you, God. You held back the storehouse. You closed the doors. You, you limited what, what was able to come through. But on the question is, why wasn't I a bigger Tamachach? And why didn't, I, why didn't I have more Amuna? Why didn't I do more Chesed? Why didn't I see, have more Yerah Shemayim? God says, look... I gave you a background and everything, but ultimately that's on you. You had the final say. I think that's what he's trying to say, is we can overcome that. We can, we can create that. We can mold and shape that despite whatever background so we're coming from. you're saying that Hashem's limiting it or not. Right. That's from Hashem. And then the spiritual is really up to you at the end of the day. Exactly. We can choose in the end of the day. We can, we can despite... I mean, look at every Holocaust survivor... Is there a greater predisposition to not have faith than having lived through the Holocaust? And every Holocaust survivor who nonetheless chooses Amuna is, is, is a fulfillment of this statement because they have transcended what any normal human being, how they would react. To react to experiencing that and keep Amuna and stay observant is superhuman, it's heroic, it's, they've made the choice to overcome whatever background predisposition anyone could have thrown their way. There's no, you know, one of the challenges of second generation Holocaust survivors is that, for the, they say growing up is, they never get sympathy from their parents. Right? A kid breaks their arm in 17 places on the swing mm-hmm. in school, and the parent says, yeah, that must have hurt, but let me tell you what one day in the barrack was like in Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. You want me to feel bad for you? You know what it was like in Auschwitz for one day? I feel bad for you. And there's a lot of, Pathology in and second generation Holocaust. Correct. That. Even if the parent never said it, the kid might feel it. How can I complain? complain? To them right. What they want. So there's a lot of there's a lot of pathology there, right? So the point is that whatever hardship anyone is ever going through in life that makes them feel like they're struggling with Amuna, it pales in comparison. It doesn't scratch the surface of what a Holocaust survivor went through. And nevertheless, the Holocaust survivor shows the capacity for Amuna. It means we have the capacity to 
doesn't mean that you should have emuna because they have it, but it means that we have the ability. We have the ability. So that that that's what he's saying. In Gashmis, you could work from morning till night, your whole life, whatever. If God decided you're never going to earn more than X, you're just not going to earn more than X. But in Ruchnius, nothing's holding you back. Nothing. Nothing stands in the, in the way God of will in the area of Ruchnius. Right. Right. Yes. I I have a question. You were saying that people are born in a certain manner, in a certain way. That's their DNA. Yeah. And they have to work to overcome that. Now, what about people today who say they were born with this affinity to being homosexual? Should they just accept that? That's how they were born? Or is it something that they should work on? It's a very important question. (laughs) It's a little bit of a topic for another time. Just a little bit. Um... The answer is, I think Judaism acknowledges it's possible. You know, there's a whole debate whether homosexuality is genetic, is it nature, is it nurture, and so on. Without weighing in on the debate, I think that Judaism has a response either way. And it's not a simple response, and it has to be a very sympathetic response, and a sensitive response. But we have all kinds of predispositions. There are people who have genetically been predisposed to rage. There are people who are genetically predisposed to addiction. There are people who are genetically predisposed to all kinds of behaviors. Mm -hmm. And yet, we say that we have the inner capacity to overcome that predisposition and to regulate our behavior in our lives nonetheless. And Judaism asks of somebody who may have a genetic predisposition to that identity that as difficult and as painful and as hard and as complicated as it is, they also have the ability to regulate it. And again, it's a whole other area and, and not a simple one, but whatever our predisposition, free will means that from a spiritual standpoint, we have the capacity to regulate it. All right, we're going to stop here. We will not continue next week. I'm away next week.